Wouldn't you say, Dr. Nair, that Ronald Reagan was a man of great inconsistencies, a hero to the working class who governed for the wealthy, a small government conservative who left a record high budget deficit, a champion of law and order who appointed a cabinet full of felons, and in short, a worthy subject for an honest appraisal, not another gushing homage. Before you revise your upcoming biography, Ronald Reagan, An American Life, do you have any questions? Oh, sorry. Yes, Ms. Mann. Why did you abduct me and bring me to an abandoned warehouse? Because all the dirty deals that made Reagan such a quote-unquote successful president involve secrecy and coercion. Surely you can grasp that symbolism, Dr. Nair. But the Reagan administration was also known for its embrace of opulence and luxury. Wouldn't it have been equally appropriate to woo me over dinner and cocktails? Kidnapping you was cheaper, Dr. Nair. Unlike Ronald and Nancy Reagan, I try to practice fiscal responsibility. How odd that you should mention money, Miss Mann. Perhaps I can secure a larger advance from my publisher if I tell them I have a collaborator? Do you think I'm for sale, Dr. Nair? Wasn't that the lesson of the 1980s, Miss Mann? That greed is good? That everyone is for sale? Not me, Dr. Nair. I'm acting for the betterment of society. My motto is, I'm Sylvia, and I'm here to help. Those have to be the seven most terrifying words in the English language. Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 40, Ronald Reagan, Part 1. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears for db comedy presents the electables we are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that america has had up until this moment but we're not quite there yet and any help that you can give us or any thanks you would like to give us would be appreciated if you haven't please subscribe to db comedy presents the electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast also don't forget to like and recommend so more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents, and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. DB Comedy welcomes our first sponsor. And we welcome anyone that would like to advertise on DB Comedy Podcasts. Reach out to us at dbcomedychicago at gmail.com or on our Facebook page, DB Comedy. Rates are very reasonable. And we welcome your patronage. Mm-hmm. 
timely comedies. We are not having my grandfather's funeral in Animal Crossing. Historical dramas. Good evening, Mr. Wells. I'm sorry, do I know you? I'm Orson Wells. Ah, I should have known your voice. I'm here to, as we say in America, bury the hatchet. A medieval epic. A calf, springing over the grass, bounded up to us. The pen of God will be written on your skin. And you will live forever. Continuous Dream Theater is a podcast of audio dramas and comedies by Chicago playwright and author Amy Kreider. Just visit www.continuousdream.com and click on an episode title to enjoy a range of award-winning entertainment. That's www.continuousdream.com. Continuous Stream is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast player. Thank you. Well, hold on, hold on. Yes, 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 yes. Let's let's introductions. Who are we? Well, I'm Paul. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. I'm Joe. Tommy. And I'm Patrick. And Americanists. I'm James. I'm Chelsea. Joe, can I say I love the efficiency of just yelling introductions at the beginning of an episode? Hey, yeah. whatever it takes. No problem. <laughs> As you know, if you are here by now, Ronald Reagan and um, oh, yes. Boo Hiss, but when you talk about people that shaped certain epochs, sometimes that's not for the best, but it, it attention must be paid, as some other authors said at some point. And so since there is a lot, um, there will certainly be a whole lot to talk about with Ronald Reagan when we get to the actual presidency. He does, I mean, I have to say, as a personal way to start, that maybe more so than than most of the other presidents that we've talked about, Reagan really came into the White House with quite a legacy. Unlike Carter, unlike Kennedy to a certain extent, unlike a lot of these these quickie presidents he had a lot that he did before he got before he got to where we're where we're eventually going to go and um you know in the spirit of paul's tradition of throwing out potential provocateur statements i'll just throw this out and then we go wherever we want but i will just observe that it seems like even if you put away the the resume particularly you when you hear all these politicians still talk about Reagan or who they think Reagan is or who they believe Reagan is or who they mythologize Reagan to be, that there may be no bigger presidential myth that's been more influential on culture, politics, economics, you name it, than Ronald Reagan. I'm guessing you're taking FDR off the table. I was just going to say my favorite yeah. president. How in terms? Well, I, I mean, hmm. he's speaking second half of the last century. This is this is what yeah. I would this Are is what I would say. Joe. I would say that in terms of someone who seemed to 
in the way that they presented themselves and in the way they spoke seemed to capture the national mood. I don't think there's been anyone who's been better at that than Ronald Reagan, at least in the last 70 years, at least since JFK. I, and, I would, well, when we get to Trump, I will actually argue, I will push back against that <laughs> when we talk about American mood. But anyway, Reagan won majorities, Trump didn't. That is true. But, but I mean, there are many different ways to capture a majority as well. Then I'm going to throw out my bomb statement and just so Joe and I can play tennis with it mm-hmm. and everyone else can try to bounce it off over the net. They can That's play pickleball. But. <sighs> Warped metaphors aside, I would I would say that Reagan's influence is far more cultural than it is political or economic. I just saw steam coming out of James's ears. Again, I I think it's really hard to like you've got Reagan the person, and then you've got Reagan the administration, right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes these things had really no idea what each other was doing. Um, <laughs> And the Alzheimer's didn't help. Right. And so I think that Reagan's blueprint for policy has been as influential as as many modern presidents in terms of in, until Trump, really, it was the blueprint for every Republican running for president. Cut government, cut taxes, reduce the size of the state peace at home, security abroad, and... And God, don't forget God. Right, and yeah, that, I, yeah you know, kind of traditional American values, quote, unquote. And With one exception that I'm going to throw right at you right now. Divorce. He was pro-immigrant. James, I agree that everything you're saying about Reagan's blueprint, those are the things that came out of his mouth. Those are not the things that came out of his administration. That's correct. And I, I and I, that's... That's where I like. I'm not necessarily fully disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of caveating it. But like, <laughs> yeah, when you look at his administration, did they reduce social welfare programs? Sure, but did they increase government spending in lots of un- other areas that you know, yes. massively increased the deficit? Yes, they did. And expand um, government? Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, th- there's there's the things that Reagan kind of said he was going to do, and then there was the things that. That the Reagan administration actually did, which were not necessarily that. And so if you want to say kind of, is it policy? Is it culture? Is it the culture of policy? You know, I, I think that that Reagan's the policy of truth there right, had, a, had an impact on the culture of policy of the Republican Party, even if Reagan's administration didn't actually embrace that policy from a policy standpoint. So I guess I, I'm going to kind of conditionally agree with your statement. I, and I don't even know that it's so much, you know, Reagan, the person or Reagan, the administration. I think that what was most influential about Reagan was who Reagan told people he was and what he told people he stood for. This um, is what I mean. Yeah. And again, whether or not he actually stood for those things, I think is pretty questionable. But what he told people he stood for was attracted a powerful enough coalition to win 48 states, right? And so that ended up becoming a very kind of tempting metaphor to reach back for, for, you know, conservative candidates who wanted to also, you know, win. I saw Chelsea checking out Staying Alive. Is that in preparation for this episode? 
Yes, I actually, I was really worried. So I and my professional books in that they all have degrees themselves. And I was so mad at myself because I didn't grab Sean Wilentz's Age of Reagan, mm. which is like the book. But luckily, it's mostly the book for the presidential years. This is more about Reagan's shittiness as governor of California. So it's not Reagan's life at Studio 54? It is not. I'm sorry. It's actually a great book. I'm sure I've recommended it before. Yes. Uh, hey, Patrick, say, hit it. unmute and do the song. Chelsea's Book Club, reading about the Reagans. <laughs> kind of. So it's about the 1970s and the last days of the working class. So not only the like economic smashing of working class people, which continues on today, um, but also the turn of the working class away from democratic politics and moving towards the new right. Yeah. Which so is how much of a role did Reagan play in that? Reagan is Reagan's not so much a cause of the new right but is a beneficiary of it. And I, you know, I have my own ideas about what I want this episode to be about. And I, <laughs> we haven't had a chance yet to emphasize the, sh the local shift to the right that really comes before Reagan's national rise and before like the, the rise of the national shift to the right. And it, Again, we like we always say it never happened again, right? This local shift that happened in the Sun Belt in the 60s and 70s really foreshadows what happens in the 80s, just like local shifts to the right definitely did not foreshadow a shift to the right in national politics today. And not only that, but from a, again, from a political perspective, Democrats started to really abandon the New Deal ideology because the Reaganism, Reaganism was so powerful, they felt they had to respond. I have a feeling when we get to Clinton and probably even Obama, a lot of their policies were built more on the Reagan policy infrastructure than the New Deal policy infrastructure, even though they're trying to do both. Um, but Josie, are you going to echo the common complaint that the Democrats abandoned the working class because of Reagan? I I don't think Democrats, to me, it's one of those chicken and the egg problems. Is Did Democrats abandon the white working class? Because let's be real, it's we should specify white working class and not just working class. We're all not. Did Democrats yes. abandon the white working class or did white working class people turn away from the Democratic Party? And it's probably, the answer is probably yes to both. To me, the Democratic Party would be fools not to want more people to vote for them. So I don't know that it's necessarily a turning away from now, working class. They are fools, so. <laughs> or was it simply they forgot how to win elections and there was tactical idiocy going on all around? Well, I, both I, yeah, I think, I think the Democratic Party uh, comes into the 70s realizing that you can't keep all of the balls in the air you can't keep juggling all of the 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 different uh constituency groups that made the big you know new deal coalition when many of 
the people who were a part of that coalition now see themselves and their values and their needs as opposed in opposition to people who they're supposed to be in the under the big tent with right and so especially during economic tumult in the 70s that's really when you see white working class voters turning away from the democratic party because they see themselves in economic competition with the other folks who make up that democratic coalition, right? Latinos, black folks, women increasingly. And so it's much easier to make that hard turn away from the democratic party for the white working class. I think you also had um, the rise of the culture wars and cultural values, you know, Jerry Caldwell with the moral majority the idea that you know the democrats were trying to bring some kind of vice Cultural revolution yes <laughs> an embrace of wealth as a value culturally yeah. greed is good well yeah. if greed isn't good it's just a, a, a it's just a, a sin to be uh, poor there you go good yeah it is godly yeah. This, is, this is where we start to hear the mythos of the welfare queen. Easel, of course. No, that's what Re- Reagan ran on. Well, okay, so I'm going to start out here because as any credible historian, prior to tonight's discussion, I reviewed Ronald Reagan's Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you. but you did it correctly, right? So students listening to this podcast... You can use Wikipedia, but only use the resources that they refer to, not the Wikipedia page. Wikipedia is not a legitimate They are very well annotated. At least only use their citation. (laughs) So, James, you checked his bio on Wikipedia? And it has to read as one of the more bizarre Wikipedia pages I've ever read. Just like, (laughs) and it's clear that this is a Wikipedia page that has been fought over because. It's clear that it was written by many different authors, but I want to, I want to go down to, (laughs) for those of you that are not on, that are simply listening to us, if you go to the Wikipedia page, presumably, because Wikipedia is open source, but at the time of the recording, at the very top of the Ronald Reagan page is a note with a pair of scales, with a with an image oh, of a pair of scales that. on it, which is adorable. The neutrality of this article is disputed. Harumph. So, so let, let's go to the, to the part where um uh go to early life. All right, and go to where it says in 1928, Reagan attended Eureka College with Nell, his mother's approval on religious grounds. His mother's name was Nell. Come on. Aww. <laughs> He was a mediocre student that participated in sports, drama, and campus politics. He was also elected student body president and joined a student strike that resulted in in the college president's resignation. Radical! When Reagan's college football team stayed at a hotel that would not allow two black teammates to stay there, he invited them to his parents' home in nearby Dixon. And that's one of the points is that this Wikipedia page goes through pains to describe Reagan as not being racist, but sometimes in seemingly con- like contradictory ways. So then it says, and his parents welcomed them. His parents' stance on racial questions were seemingly unusual. 
I'd question the use of the word seemingly Seemingly? there. (laughs) What is unusual? Yeah, what do we mean by what context? I find it interesting that this is basically the same story about Ford in his football days. Correct. Is the platform of the Republican Party that having a black friend is enough? Well, it says, (laughs) when racial segregation was common in many Midwestern communities, Reagan himself had grown up with very few black Americans in Dixon, and he was unaware of a race problem. How he would have been unaware of that, considering the previous story, is fairly astonishing, considering that there was a problem, his teammates could not stay at the hotel. Maybe they're saying he didn't... Yeah, maybe they're saying he didn't consider it a problem. So he was maybe sort of in favor of this stance. Okay, so going back to his uh, broadcasting career, uh, it says um, he then worked for WHO Radio in Des Moines as a broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs. His specialty was creating play-by-play accounts of games using only basic descriptions that the station received by wire as the games were in progress. So I guess, guess he got like, you know, it would basically wire him the play-by-play, like, you know, Jackson ground out to short six to three. And, and so he, then he would make up something. And he would like, have to embellish it. Yeah. Right. There was when, Jackson when, rolls over a ground ball and it's a slow roller to short. Stewart is there and he picks it up and he throws out Jackson at first, beats him by half a step. It just kind of makes it up, right? That doesn't necessarily have any. And not only that, but, well, <laughs> the funny thing though is in 1987 when Harry Carey had a stroke and couldn't broadcast <laughs> games. Paul's a White Sox fan. They had celebrities come. One of the celebrities was Ronald Reagan when he was in the White House, and he told that exact story, James, almost word for word. And then it says, using only basic descriptions that the station received by wire as the games were in progress, (laughs) simultaneously, he often expressed his opposition to racism. While he was broadcasting baseball? At an era where there were no black players. And he in, the major leagues. in the major in leagues, yeah, and he certainly wasn't broadcasting games from the Negro leagues, I right? Like, and so, so I'm just trying to imagine, and maybe this could be a skit that he's on the air, right? <laughs> and like, and he beats out the throw by half a step, and he's safe at first. And racism is bad, my friends. Racism <laughs> truly a scourge on our land. If anyone can produce any evidence of this, we're not offering a reward, but you know, see if you can. Yeah, I, uh, if- I've got one other little anecdote here. First, I just like to point out that even though he, you know, and again, I don't want to question anyone's like military service. He served in World War II, but he didn't serve in a combat role. He made movies. And then he went, apparently was complaining about how no one, he couldn't fire anyone because they were inefficient or whatever. And it's like, dude, you're making movies. Yeah. Talent agent Lou Wasserman very famously negotiated with Warner Brothers to keep him out of um, the war. (laughs) On the other hand, much better actors like Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart flew planes. Actually, they had better eyesight. Reagan had poor vision, and there's your analogy. So the the quote here is that uh, James wasn't he in a cavalry unit too? It said Reagan reported for duty. And he had severe nearsightedness. And I don't know if that's just talking about his, like, you know, politics or his actual <laughs> eyes. Um, <laughs> he did have bad eyesight. The War Department presents training film TF191. Why We Don't Fight.
Whoa. Sounds pretty scary out there. Good thing we're on a soundstage in Burbank. Fellas, how about a beach scene? Much better. Hello, I'm Ronald Reagan. You may remember me from Newt Rockney All-American, King's Row, and dozens of other films nobody saw. As America prepares for war, it's imperative that each man does his duty in the armed forces. Except us movie stars. That's why the Hollywood Victory from Home Committee made this training film to teach you, the young, handsomish white actor, how to avoid the draft. Why, there's two of the committee heads now, Mr. Bob Hope and Mr. Bing Crosby. Why, hello there, Rob. Congratulations on landing this gig. I heard it was part of FDR's New Deal program for wayward actors. <laughs> Very funny, Bob. First time he's been accused of that. So how are you fellas staying away from the war? Who said we're staying away? This war is a real humdinger of an opportunity, Ron. What do you mean, Bing? Why, I'll be singing and swinging all up and down the dial on Armed Forces Radio. It's educational. How's that? We'll be broadcasting to the Germans. I'm teaching them all the ways to say I surrender in English. And if you've got a voice of gold and you'll do what you're told, you too can get yourself on the air and off the list of draftees. Or if you'd rather take the direct approach, you can do as I do. I'll be entertaining the troops over there. Over where? Right now, it's army bases in Southern California, but I'll be in Europe soon with the most gorgeous ladies you've ever seen. To remind the boys what they're fighting for? Sure. It's definitely not as human shields. Sounds like a couple of great jobs that won't get you killed. I guess you'd better get on the road to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> the phrase road to is copyrighted material owned by Paramount Pictures. You do well to remember it, Reagan. Now, Bing, what would you say to one round of golf and four rounds of drinks? Oh, what the hey, my kids aren't going to hit themselves. <laughs> Two great patriots. Say, look who else is here. Frank Sinatra, the king of the Bobby Soxers, and little Andy Hardy himself, Mickey Rooney. Stop calling me that! I'm a grown man! Oh, relax, Rooney. You made more movies this week than he has his whole career. Well, now, Frank, I may not be a great actor. Was there more? Why can't you fellows surf? I'm 4F. Got a perforated eardrum. And a medical diagnosis like that will only run you about 40 grand. Is that really why you're 4F? No, I'm crazy as a Hoboken hatter. It'll cost another 20 grand to keep that out of the press. I wanted them to say that they didn't make uniform pants big enough to accommodate my troops, if you know what I mean. But they wanted another 20 grand, and my Sicilian benefactors said no. <laughs> yes, Italians are mainly criminals. <laughs> what about you, Mick? Does somebody your size even need to dodge the draft? Ron! If I was worried about my size, I'd just stand on my box office earnings. And ever since Ava signed up to dance with G.I.s at the Hollywood Canteen, my marriage is considered active military duty, which is great, because just like military service, my marriage is something I rarely show up for. Is that something other entertainers can try? What, marrying Ava Gardner? Sure, it's pretty easy. Staying is the hard part. <laughs> So you could use your wife to avoid fighting? Oh, I can't wait to tell Jane that when I get home. Jane Wyman is home alone right now? I gotta go! <laughs> well, he left in a hurry. Wait, Ava Gardner is home alone right now? I gotta go. 
Well, now, it sounds like we've got some great ways to stay out of combat. Let's review. You can age out. You can fake a medical condition like perforated eardrums, flat feet, or homosexuality. And you can work in the USO, Armed Forces Radio, or make movies like these. Don't forget about us, you scallywag. Well, here's trouble. It's Errol Flynn and John Wayne. Howdy there, Ronnie. Howdy there, Duke. How did you stay out of the war? Well, the studio paid off the draft board, Pilgrim. Is that legal? Kinda. The important thing is, whether you serve or not, you should make war pictures and be a vocal supporter of all future wars. No questions asked. Green advice, Duke. Hero, I assume you're not serving because you're a subject of the British Empire? I'll have you know I was naturalized last August. The army physician said I had malaria, latent tuberculosis, syphilis, heart murmurs, chlamydia, gonorrhea, a rash on my back in the shape of New Zealand, and syphilis. You said syphilis twice. It was twice the clap, old chap. Well, that's sure to keep you out of combat, because no Hollywood leading man would give up the good life to serve in some middle war. Actually, Clark Gable is trading as a pilot. So is Jimmy Stewart. Plus, Henry Fonda's enlisted as a seaman. Don't say... Oh, no, I guess you can say it in that context. Well, just remember, while our fighting men are winning the war, the real heroes will be at home, winning Oscars. Now let's get to the Hollywood canteen, boys. How drunk drive us there now? So remember, actors, do your part and get exempted from the draft by any means necessary. If, since we're reading the Wikipedia, I do love the damn pr- the uh, damning with faint praise of describing Ronald Reagan's acting ability as using a simple and direct approach to acting and following his director's instructions. Reagan made thirty films. Yeah, it also I think described him as having. Um... So you're saying that throughout the war effort, he followed orders. Reagan, who had a limited did. acting range. I was dissatisfied with the roles he received. He got outacted by a chimpanzee in his most famous role. Well, we we were talking, Jay, you were talking about how he was frustrated that he couldn't remove lazy and inefficient workers. Yeah. Which is what the studio did after his screen test for It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to nail him every which way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. He did uh, oh. audition for that. Because he was supposed to get George Bailey. Yeah, George Bailey. He was yeah. up against Stewart. Oh, that would have been. The... Wasn't he also up for Casablanca at one yeah. point? No, is that true? Okay, that would that also. A, there might be another rumor, but supposedly Casablanca was supposed to be a vehicle for him and Anne Sheridan. Okay. Wait a minute. Since we're, like, since we're in Hollywood, stop. what did Studio C and Reagan that made them sign him? And who signed him? Same thing they saw in Tony Curtis. And uh, yeah, but Tony Calvin Curtis Hesley. had talent. No, Tony Curtis had a really thick Brooklyn accent. I think I think Reagan gorgeous. had the ability to take a script, be a role, and execute that role. I think the issue was that he had no like I think like it says he had a limited acting range. He had a character kind of Ronald Reagany that he yeah. was on screen and he was good at that but he was not good at playing any other role. I do like this description here. 
Reagan starred in King's Row 1942 as a leg amputee asking, quote, where's the rest of me? His I performance is considered his best by many critics. And yeah. by Reagan. It's a Wonderful Life, Ronald Reagan screen test, take 16, action! Now just a minute, just a minute, now hold on Mr. Potter. You're right when you say my father was no businessman, I know that. Why he even started this cheap Penny Annie building and loan I'll never know. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Other than it turning them into a bunch of entitled welfare queens, spending their food stamps on steak dinners. Why, here, you're... You're all businessmen here, which makes you better than the rabble who do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Cut! Ronnie, what did we tell you about ad-libbing? There you go again. Back to one. It's a Wonderful Life, scene 14, take 21, action! What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Well, just say the word, and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. And then what? Well, then I'll put a bunch of lasers on it, so we can shoot down Russian missiles. What? We begin bombing in five minutes. Cut! Ronnie, the ad-libbing. Why did you end up casting that guy anyway? Jimmy Stewart was too expensive. Back to one! It's a Wonderful Life, scene four, take 32, action! I wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! Cut! Ronnie, we've been over this. You don't play the kid version of George. Oh, right. Sorry, coach. I'm not your coach, Ronnie. I'm the director. Oh, yeah. Can I still have a jelly bean? Back to one. It's a Wonderful Life. Scene 42, take 113. Clarence, Clarence, help me. I, I want to live again. Oh. I want to live again. Hey, Mr. Campra, ain't you going to stop the shot? Clarence pushed George Bailey over the bridge. No, I think people will like this better. If he didn't want to drown, Ronnie would pull himself up by his bootstraps. All right, that's a wrap on Ronald Reagan. Take five, everyone. Can I oversimplify Ronald Reagan's psychology just a little bit? Oh, I think that's what, what we're going yeah, to be doing I actually most don't of the show. You, I don't think you can oversimplify I, Ronald Reagan. Oh, Reagan's oh give me a chance, Tom. <laughs> I'm about to. Reagan was not close to his alcohol, his shiftless alcoholic father. So I think he was very susceptible to mentors his entire life. And in his Hollywood career, and his, in his early television career, when he hooked up, with, when he became the spokesperson for GE which furnished his home he encountered a lot of very right-wing mentors oh yeah to and including his father-in-law loyal Davis whose Manchurian candidate okay spoiler alert daughter I think loyal um went on to marry Reagan I think loyal was an anti-semite and a racist he had many execrable qualities to Dr. Davis. So I think that he was always looking for a father figure and he found it in, in older conservative men and then he became one. 
I, you, yeah, I think your point too, especially that this like white conservative conservatism is rooted in daddy issues. Yeah, no, I was going to say capitalism. <laughs> A tomato, tomato. It, it's 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 rooted in corporate capitalism, right? Like, who does capital? Who does corporate capitalism benefit? Like, oh, weird, white working or white men. White men. Unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the studio system at the time, so he probably would have gravitated more toward the studio heads and the stockholders. Which in that I sense, like James is frown. At, I, I, James, are you frowning at me because I said that corporate capitalism um, only benefits white men? No, I mean I wish it benefited me a little bit more, but um... <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late to sell out, James. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true, James. You just have a higher moral uh, order. Damn, I mean, point me to um, the cashier. I want to sell out, too. <laughs> oh, you might know this. Do the Davis family have ties to Hoover? I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I don't remember reading about any specific ties between the Davis family oh. and Hoover. They did have, Loyal Davis did eventually, here we go again, uh, become a. They moved to Arizona, and Loyal became a close friend of the Goldwaters. Ah, there it is. So that was also part of the transition. The irony, though, if you're talking about studio heads, is <laughs> that Reagan signed with in the you know what was in the 30s and early 40s the most liberal studio, Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, and he was a union president, right? He was the president of the... Yeah, I was about to say, 1947, yeah. he becomes yes. president of the Screen Actors Guild. 1948, he supports Truman. And then, and then something happens that seems to make him begin to change. Gee, what could it be? Certainly not the House on american Activities Committee. Oh, for Certainly sure. not marrying the daughter of a fascist. Attention also. must be paid. <laughs> so, Red Just- scare after World War II when Reagan became re- president. And real or not, and I'm, I'm voting for the not, there was a lot of paranoia about communist infiltrations of the unions like uh, Yahtzee, and I forget the name of the other one that was competing with them. So SAG was not the only union in Hollywood. He is very active. He does become part of QAC. He testifies in the most famous, in one of the, the, the stories that I heard, thanks to Paul and Sylvia, and one of the first times we're referring to a different podcast that has been kind of an influence on ours, Kareem Longworth, well, you must remember this. Reagan but, was SAG president from 47 to 52. And then and that, again in 59. And again in yeah, 59. he resigned okay. at that point, and then he was reinstalled in 59, I think as a... Don't come at us, QAC. Yeah. Well, also because we've so got sto- a puppet in front of you. Right. So you like So him. the story they tell is there's this actress, Nancy Davis, and he <laughs> seems to take a shine to her. And apparently he, but he's looking for um, communists. So the story that was told on You Must Remember This is he basically goes and says, You're on the blacklist. I can take you off if you go out with me. Yeah. Wasn't it also a different Nancy Davis that that would have been referring to? Correct. There was a Nancy Davis on like a communist, on some, probably just a liberal group, but supposedly there was a communist named Nancy Davis. And 
the future well, that's not a common name. the future yeah. miss dis miss just say no <laughs> she well, got, the, she got the wrong man podcast so i won't give her other names <laughs> man or what she was known for yeah, yeah. but yeah. no which, we'll talk uh, about. since when have we been a family podcast <laughs> my family you put a smile on many a man's face oh yeah <laughs> oh, i yeah. do want to say that's kind of a sweet story about the meeting i'm glad there's a romantic component to his abuses of power <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I'm definitely yeah. glad that he pressured her into going yeah. out with them. That did he name happened. names? The only question I care about for this part, not actually, I have a lot of other questions. But did he? He, from what I understand, he he says that there are likely communists in SAG, right? Like. Mm -hmm. And that's it, right? There, probably didn't name probably are communists and saying. Yeah, in but the what union. We, well, I'm also thinking like we were coming off of how long? We were coming off of like debatably a 15 year depression, depending on where you count the end during the war. A lot of people were probably tempted by a redistribution of wealth yeah. during that. I, I still am. See, yeah. Tommy, <laughs> I would say probably he didn't have too many names to name because that would require him to have friends. To, he had to make an impression on people to actually know anything about them. Yeah. He wasn't an Ilya Kazan. <laughs> yeah. Well, he must have had enough friends. Otherwise, how is he president of SAG? I think he had, again, I think his personal charisma made him friends. I don't know if they so much respected him. But it was I also a, a very political. Yeah, yeah. It was also a very political role, and he was politically obsessed. He was a political obsessive even at the time. And he, um, political obsessive even going back to college. I mean, think like mm -hmm. he was elected student body president, and whether or not, like, you know, we could clearly see the the brain of a political animal here, right? Like, go where there's votes, and that's something that Reagan consistently does throughout his political career. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, thing also, about... this conversation about like, how does he get elected? Like, he has no friends at all. It makes me the only person who I think of now. I'm like. Lyndon Johnson had no friends. Yeah. <laughs> Reagan also, like, very famously friends with Rock Hudson. I think he had at least acquaintances who were friendly. William Holden liked him enough to be the best man at his wedding to Nancy, although they weren't actually all that close. Another Probably thing about Reagan. his SAG presidency, and Tommy, you've already dropped the name, so I'll pick it up. Lou Wasserman, his agent was a very big deal with the most important talent agency in Hollywood, MCA, which somehow evolved out of Music Corporation of America. So even then, he had his puppeteers. And Reagan rewarded Lou Wasserman's loyalty by making an absolutely filthy deal circa 1952 when he was president that allowed talent agency, that a one waiver to a talent agency because they were prohibited from working in production. So Reagan gave a waiver as SAG president to MCA, and within 10 years, they'd taken over 60% of all the production in Hollywood. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Darling, why aren't you getting ready? Don't you remember? We're meeting Frank and Ava at the Brown Derby for drinks to celebrate our engagement. 
Well, give the Sinatras my best, Nancy. Much as I'd love to sit around listening to Frank chew the fat. The polite word for Ava is voluptuous, darling. I've got work to do before tomorrow's Screen Actors Guild board meeting with the talent agencies. Really, darling? I'm on the SAG board, too, but you don't see me slaving away like a soda jerk. But I'm the president. Exactly, darling. Let the lawyers think for you. But if I give MCA, my own agency, a waiver to start producing TV shows, our members will get better royalties, but it's going to look pretty darn crooked. To whom? The communists who said you gave names to HUAC to save your film career? Those pinkos were all proved wrong when your film career went straight downhill afterwards. Well, you don't have to be red to see a conflict of interest. Speaking of red, darling, you look a little hungry. Why don't you have a jelly bean? Mommy? Uh, Mommy, where are you, Mommy? Mommy is here, little Ronnie. Grant MCA a waiver, and once they take over all the television production in America, you'll get to host a nice TV series and become a corporate spokesman, and Mommy and Ronnie will live in a very nice house. But if anyone asks about the deal you made, tell them, I don't recall. Let Mommy hear you say it. I don't recall. Very good, darling. One more jelly bean. Oops, not one of the nasty black ones. It's morning in America. It's morning. You know, second thought, our members need those residuals. MCA, you'll get your waiver. That's my Ronnie. Now on to important questions. Shall I wear a string of pearls or just a choker, darling? Oh, the choker, Nancy. Fond as I am a Frank, I'm not sure I want him staring at your cleavage. Oh, please, darling. Ava has enough cleavage for three men. Three women, too, for that matter. Still, why take chances while I won't be there? I'm staying home to read up on President Truman's plan for national health insurance. It might be helpful to SAG members. National health insurance? Darling, if people can't afford a doctor's visit, they shouldn't get sick. Well, it's easy to preach the gospel of self-reliance. But it doesn't match reality. When hard-working Americans get sick or injured, those hospital bills cost a heck of a lot of green. Speaking of green, darling, you're looking a little hungry. Why don't you have a jelly bean? Mommy? Mommy? Uh, hold me, Mommy. Ronnie? You know Mommy has a daddy, too. And he's a doctor. Government health insurance means he'll make less money and won't be able to buy his nice Cadillacs. You need to scare people into thinking Medicare will lead to communism. Let Mommy hear you say, We're going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Spend like children were free? We'll work on it. It's morning in. Won't brainwashing cause dementia? Probably, darling. But when it does, Mommy will get to reap all kinds of fabulous publicity by taking care of you in your enfeebled state. It's morning in America. Morn America. <laughs> On second thought, health insurance is a luxury, not a right. Brown Derby, here we come. Did Frank and Ava reserve a booth? Probably two, considering the size of Ava's posterior. Shall I wear my mink or ermine, darling? Nancy, you'd look beautiful in a flak jacket. As I'm sure you would have, darling, if you had enlisted. 
ermine it is. Shall I accessorize with a brooch or a pin? You know how I feel naked without my diamonds. You should be used to that after appearing in all those blue movies. Speaking of blue, darling, you're looking a little hungry. So when he was hosting GE Theater and Death Valley Days, was he getting a cut? Oh, yes, he was. He was producing. Ah. This is Reagan, right? Not this Wasserman. Is Reagan. Oh, Not yeah. Wasserman. yeah. I don't think Lou Wasserman ever hosted anything. Well, that's actually kind of ahead of his time. Yeah. Greed? No, he... <laughs> I mean, well, no, just, I mean, producers, you know, on-camera talent that have a stake on the show that they produce. Which I mean, was... Burt Lancaster was doing that, so... Lancer? Or no, 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 I'm thinking of... Um, yeah, but he had to work around the blacklist, too, a little bit. And uh, Reagan could take a, take a few different cuts from both hosting and producing. Yeah, and then previous had, rules um... that he had helped weaken as SAG presidents would have prohibited. Because SAG wasn't really that good. At, they didn't quite know what to do about television. And Reagan clearly embraced it. That's the first, like, you could you could almost, or I would argue that's the first of, like, the corporations taking advantage of confusion about new media, which is now, like, the oldest media. Not really radio, but still. Mm -hmm. And so he gets these leadership roles. He has this prominent on-camera role. He does work the, work his connections backstage and behind the camera. But through all of that, he never clearly says, I guess, or he he kind of gets starts to get Weasley over, is he a Democrat, is he a Republican? Because in 1962, when he prepares for an actual political run outside of the, the studio system, he declares his party. And where have we heard a variation of this before? I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. So it's it's interesting Justin. to kind of track his. So he's he's a Democrat in '48. He supports Truman, and, you know, in the, uh, you know, again, and maybe you know, he just he just despised Dewey because well, Reagan was nothing but a character. Dewey had absolutely no character at all. Um, <laughs> um I like that one, but. By 52, he's in Eisenhower's camp. He supports Eisenhower. And, and perhaps we could see that as many Americans' frustration with the Korean War, certain economic things that were going on. But, you know, by the, the name of God, he was up against Adlai Stevenson. Right. Right. <laughs> and again, I, Eisenhower was going to win. So why not support the winner? That makes sense. And um, let's, be, let's also take a moment, though, to remember that Eisenhower also didn't lean Republican or Democrat either, right? Right, the right. And, and so, you know, that was innocuous enough. But by the late 1950s into the early 1960s, he is criticizing, you know, he's he's giving speeches for GE. He's like, like basically, he's like running GE's employee indoctrination unit. He's making political speeches for GE that they're making their employees watch to tell them what they should think about politics. It was never a problem again. And the <laughs> speeches were basically pro, you know, corporate, pro-individual choice, anti-government regulation, as one might expect a 
corporate entity to make speeches about. And of course, as a shill actor, okay, yeah, Reagan's going to take this job and make some money doing it. Maybe he, as he's reading the lines, he's actually like, well, this actually makes sense. And that can like convinces him of, of their truth because by the early to mid 1960s, one, he's criticizing uh, Medicare and then saying like, we, we can't have, you know, Medicare is going to end individual choice in America. And does it on an album, like right, you could put it right next to all the party albums and the button down mind of Bob Newhart from the era. Oh, and all the Ronald Reagan. Reagan speaks out against socialized medicine. That's a good way he, to he get supports, kicked out of um, supports <laughs> Nixon in 60. And, and you may maybe see that as that kind of his, his permanent break with the Democratic Party. And then by 64, he's in Goldwater's camp. Um, and boy, is he. Because again, back to that well-trusted source, Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> because he gives, he basically, nom- it looks like he nominates Goldwater and delivers a speech. It gets, a, it becomes known as a time for choosing. And uh, being a speech teacher, I, I love you. Like the founding fathers knew that governments don't control things. And they knew when a government sets out to do that, it must use force and coercion to achieve its purpose. Now, forgive my really bad Reagan, but I bring that up because, Paul, you'll love this. Mm-hmm. At the time of the speech, two columnists, one of whom, David Broder, became very everywhere in the 70s and 80s. They described that speech as... The most successful national political debut since William Jennings, Jennings Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> if we need any any real evidence about the decline in national discourse, like Williams Jennings Bryan was a terrible politician, but he actually could write a speech. The Cross of Gold speech is a good speech. Yeah. A time for choosing is not. <laughs> I'm not even sure it's grammatically correct in its title. <laughs> And I'm just going to make a case for Adlai Stevenson again. If this all might have been different, if Stevenson had won, raising the quality of political discourse in the 60s and 50s. But it does help Reagan because he because he takes that speech and parlays it into the governorship of California in 1966. And hey. An actor becoming governor of California? Why, that never happened again, did it? No, sir. Well, I I recently was listening to um, a a conversation with the author about the Black Panthers. And they said the Black Panthers being in California um, and then, you know, being perceived to be nationwide and scaring the shit out of middle-class white America uh, did help pave the way for Reagan to go to the governorship. Was that yeah, true in 1966? Yeah. 1970, I can see it, but in 1966. Oh, no, because in 19... 19- interesting about California is California is so much on the forefront of natural trends at this point that mm-hmm. kind of what happens to California in the 60s and 70s is then what happens to the nation in the 80s and 90s, where it becomes more diverse. People are moving there because, and so it's it's rapidly diversifying. Immigrants are coming to California. Minorities are coming to California. Um, and in 1965, one of the first race-based police riots in Watts. Right. 
and and kind of the the liberal fringe which you know kind of takes root in california and you know it's my contention that it is pretty much a fringe that that the hippies were really only maybe five percent of the population but they're allowed and you know kind of obstreperous five percent and that then leads to kind of there being reaction against that as well and so i think that feeling of you know many kind of middle class um white Californians that like, whoa, all of a sudden the neighborhood is different and in a way that we feel is scary, rightly or wrongly, then leads to a kind of reactionary style of politics. And by the way, I I love the fact that in 1966, who does he beat? Jerry Brown's dad, Pat. Edmund G. Yep. So there were currents of, you know, black nationalism, black radicalism that probably scared your average orange county ranch owner it and scared reagan so this is <laughs> the i think this but he is had no the, prejudice tommy i just wanted to point out to to james's point right this was the point that i was making at the very beginning this this sort of like sunbelt rising by the way which is a great book um if we i don't have it with me again because it's at the office but if the this whole like sunbelt rising moment of the of the 50s and 60s California and that whole area do tell the future of the nation. It would, as we move away from World War, well, actually not move away from, right? World War II made the Sun Belt in many ways what it is today because you have the military industrial complex, which is mostly centered out in right? The Sun Belt, where there's lots of wide open space. Uh, this is where we get metropolitan sprawl from too, right? You're not building a huge aeronautics testing base in um, upstate New York because uh, A, there's mountains, B, there's no room. Uh, and it's right? cold You're... and it's hard to fly airplanes in the cold. Right. So this is why the Sun Belt economically starts to take power away from the Northeast, and when you take away economic power, you also siphon away, right, political and cultural power from the Northeast. And so this is why in the sort of post-World War II era, the Sun Belt really becomes the center of political, economic, and and cultural power, which is why you see what happens in California. There so goes in California, so goes the nation. You know, as you mentioned that, I'm sorry, when you mentioned that, it suddenly struck me like the Tonight Show moves from New York, Jack Parr, to Hollywood, Johnny Carson. Well, you had more talent out there. (laughs) And Carson was, he was young and. But TV was started in New York. It was all live and definitely a talent migration. And by the time you get to the 60s, man, there it is. And what's so interesting to me is you this whole like local conservative movement that's happening in the Sun Belt, you begin to see it in that 1960s election between Nixon and Kennedy, right? But Kennedy still wins, right? Because the Northeast still has the political power. The Sun Belt has that economic power, but they haven't siphoned away that political and cultural power yet. But by the time we get to 1980, it's it's it, it, totally it's... reversed. Not what reverse, you're saying, but... though, Chelsea, is that a bunch of people who are getting fat and rich off of government military contracts formed a libertarian anti-government ideology that took over the country. 
well, I don't know that I would say anti-government because that's who they're getting their money from, but I, I think a pro-corporate anti-government regulation mm-hmm. uh, ideology. And, a right? cut, and, 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 and one that is pretty clearly racist, though they... Yep. Disc, they hide it under this law and order thing. And the law and order thing also allows them to start to look at those dirty hippies. So like, I, like two years before, before two years before Kent State, Ronald Reagan goes and kills, uh go, you know, has the National Guard go to Berkeley and offs a protester. I thought you were gonna say Ronald Reagan also killed four students on a campus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I think it, it's interesting to compare Reagan and Nixon, right? Because I feel like Nixon was doing similar things, mm-hmm. but ultimately the thing that he act, gets nailed to the cross for is Watergate. Um, and also and, being a really disgusting, dislikable person inwardly. Well, and but but that, like, no one Watergate. cared about that, right? But, I mean, he was a disgusting person paranoid. in 72 and he won 47 states. Um, you know, it was only when they were like, okay, well, maybe you actually, you know, funded people like, and again, like if Watergate happens today, it's a page two story, but um, I think it already has. And it's more like a page eight story, but right. You- but you know, <laughs> at the time it was the cover up. Yeah, right. It was, it was, the, it was the cover up. It was the, the Saturday night massacre. It was, I, I, I think it was the sense that like, this guy was desperately destroying the executive branch to protect himself yep. that eventually got him, you know, the other Republicans to say, no, you need to go. But until he did that. Barry Goldwater being the person that says essentially pack. Yeah. I think, I, I think comparing Reagan and Nixon, right. Nixon's paranoia eats him alive, essentially. Um, Reagan doesn't have that. <laughs> what I would say about Reagan, if I were going to oversimplify him yet again, and really that's the point of this entire podcast, is that <laughs> Reagan Nixon's paranoia comes from that tiny little bit of conscience that he has. I don't think Reagan has one. I think Reagan could shoot someone in the face and five seconds later convince himself that he didn't shoot someone in the face. Well, that That's the dementia. Yes. <laughs> so I but I think he was born with it. Or a psychosis. I, I do think though, okay, so to I feel like by the late sixties he's being taken seriously as a as a political figure, at least to some extent. At I least think within that the he's Republican just Party. Simply more likable than Nixon was. Yeah. N- nobody like Nixon doesn't have friends. He's not a nice guy. He does Nixon not strike didn't like you Nixon. We as get an it. enjoyable yeah. <laughs> person to be around. And and frankly, as much as I criticize Ronald Reagan's morality his policies a lot a lot about him he seems like a nice guy like when unless he's what you're one of his kids november 14th 
I'm up to my ass in hippies in their protests about the Vietnam War, if you haven't heard. I sure did, Dick. I was calling you with a little friendly advice. What can you tell me about a bunch of kids marching around the Capitol? Well, what are you going to do? Talk sports and make jokes like you did on Laugh-In? What's wrong with that? Dick. The kids love me. Dick. There's nothing more patriotic than talking about football with strapping young men. They're protesting against fighting for our country. And that sock it to me? Well, that may be one of the hippest cats anywhere in the United States. Well, and how many of them voted for you? Yeah. Uh, my daughters think I'm the swellest dad of all the dads they know. Well, that's because their dad is the president. Well, what the hell do you know, Mr. Outacted by a Monkey? I don't care. I don't want to be liked. I want to be respected. Ask my pal, Bing Crosby. Everyone loves Bing. Oh, I could tell you stories. Look, Ron, I saw what you did when those commies tried to take over that park in Berkeley over the summer. Good. When I saw what happened in Chicago with Daly sent his goons after those protesters... It almost made me want to become a Democrat again. So instead of that, I just decided to take the skull cracking at Berkeley. It looked bad, Ron. It felt good, Dick. Well, you're a governor. You can do shit like that. Well, you're the president. You can do more shit like that. I don't know, Ron. But more important than being president, you're the head of the Republican Party. We're supposed to be the party of law and order, not American bandstand. I know, I know. Trust me. I think I have it with the kids. Really? Are you going to go soft and actually try to stop the war? Stop the war? Fuck no! I'm not stopping the war. I'm going to ramp it the hell up. A good bunch of commies is a dead bunch of commies. Good idea. As long as someone is kicking those kids' asses, it's good for America and good for us. Oh, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. Because the kids will get so disillusioned, they'll come back and just make money for themselves, just in time for them to be voting age. Then they'll become Republicans for life. And those kids' parents will keep voting for us because of how strong we look. Well, not all the kids will. We'll let the rest of them smoke dope and listen to rock music until their eyes bleed. Instead of lobbing tear gas canisters at them? Oh, oh, no, no, you should still do that, too. It'll make them smoke up more. Oh, well, thanks, Ron. Well, I can see why people think you'll be a good leader for our party someday. So they tell me. You and Nancy going to come down for dinner over the holidays? We'll try. I may even be putting a gift or two together for you. Some lovely California wine. Oh, I wouldn't turn it down. Oh, I know. When you and Pat were over last month, we found a few bottles were missing. Ron, I am not a crook. Well, I don't know about that. But don't go soften those kids. Show them who's America's daddy. Oh, they'll find out soon enough. Who's their daddy? I'm their daddy. And what will you do to those ungrateful brats? I'll fuck them up. Good night, Ron. Good night, daddy. So, um, 
Reagan does return $5.7 billion to taxpayers during both of his times as governor, including $4 billion in property tax relief. Let's take a second to acknowledge who are most people who own property. White folks, especially like white middle class wealthy folks. Honest citizens, as he might call Honest them. citizens. However, Reagan also at that time sponsors the largest tax increase in California history. No. Uh, in, including he raises the sales tax from 3% to almost 5%. Jeez. Corporation taxes doubled from 55 to 9%. Taxes on banks increased from 95 to 13%. And the maximum on personal income taxes rose from 7 to 11%. That is not insignificant. Overall, the annual state budget increased from $4.6 billion to $10.2 billion. Wow. So at the time, Chelsea, was he able to do what he would later do as president, which is pass tax increases but make one single budget cut that he made that made him think that it was all revenue neutral? So I think actually what Reagan does here is he he says he's going to do one thing, right, which is uh, tax relief. And he's like, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to lower taxes. And so he lowers property taxes. He lowers taxes that impact the people who he knows are going to vote for him, right? But he doesn't take it he doesn't like take it across the finish line so to speak he doesn't uh he's so narrowly focused on not i don't want to say doing the job but um getting some measure of what he says done but then doesn't follow through on it like you know property you know taxes don't just end at property taxes bud like there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of taxes there mm-hmm. so I agree with you. Once Dan. again, he does uh, something completely different than what the myth says he does. Yeah. Well, and yes and no, right? Like, because you <laughs> could see in the way that it's not so much a tax cut as it's a tax redistribution, right? It's a tax redistribution away from property owners to yeah. consumers, right? And so consumers, everyone's a consumer. Everybody consumes. If you stop consuming, you die something that's going to generally have take a bite more out of people who are lower down on the income ladder whereas property owners especially in a you know state like california where even in the 60s and 70s property was starting to become scarce uh, is going to be something that is going to benefit landowners for the most part who are white ranchers especially but also people who own you know single family homes in the burbs so yeah that's a that's an example of where if you're one of those people, Reagan seems to be exactly the kind of person who says he is, whereas if you are not one of those kinds of people, Reagan has just made your life worse. I think also, though, it has, um, I feel like this inability to see like the bigger tax picture, right? Like Reagan is is so focused on tax cuts that he sees like property taxes cut. Okay, good. Check. Right. It's done. I I feel like that sort of narrow view of taxation and how it fits into his overall promise during his campaign is also a a what's the thing what's the word i'm thinking of a symptom of his 
role as like a political novice, right? He he has never held a high political office before being the governor of California, right? So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and as an admitted Democrat, progressive, liberal, what you will, I'm listening yeah. to this. And at this moment, I'm going, how do people like my parents, because I come from a working class background, how do they not see through that? But they didn't. And maybe because as a Democrat and I'm literally sitting here going, how are they not doing it? I'm not seeing how he did it. Thus, he's able to do it. And so many others that follow in his footsteps are able to do it. It's the razzle-dazzle. It's the smoke and mirrors. It's <sighs> over here, not over here. And my theory remains, and James and I will have a whole debate about it sometime for on our own podcast, is that people based on the class, people vote based on the class they aspire to, not the class they belong to. Mm -hmm. He kind of nodded, so maybe we won't. Have that. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I think that there's, I think it's more complex than that, but I think that there's truth to that. Um, I, I also think, like, you know, Joe, like, where did you grow up? Cleveland. Cleveland. You didn't know that? My good. Okay, yeah. News release. Anyway, continue. And so, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just trying to, trying to, you know, sketch well, out. And, your, and, your... You know, I grew up in the 70s in an era, and Sandy, same. The city eroded to the point where it became this hero, just hideous national joke. They're and they're going to when the river burned. Yeah, they're going to fix it soon, or wait, wait. Yes. Did you, Paul? Did you say they will write where the river burned? Because that book is sitting on my bookshelf. Joe, don't you think that perhaps your parents looked around at the state of the city of Cleveland and saw, wow, the current trends of you know politics have not worked out for Cleveland. Undoubtedly, need to try something different. What about you, Sandy? Your parent, you you've got similar. You know, your your parents were blue collar too. Yeah, well, ma'am, my dad was a union printer, but they were lifelong Democrats. I don't know how my dad actually would vote right now, but mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and yeah, I, my dad was one of those people that proudly went went to war so he didn't have to tell you how he voted. He's someone that absolutely adored Archie Bunker as a character. I can tell you that. And certainly in my neighborhood, absolutely like the reagan democrat core ethnic former blue collar uh feeling dispossessed caucasian fearful of blacks moving into the neighborhood absolutely yep. hits all the buttons yep. Yep. checks all the boxes nineteen seventy six I graduated in Holy 1980. I, I graduated in 1980. Day, Paul. The Olympics are in Olympics. Montreal. The Olympics are in Montreal. The Winter Olympics are, weren't they in Innsbruck, Austria? Yeah. And there's an election going on, and there's a Republican incumbent who's quite vulnerable. Jerry in 76. <laughs> I'm going to buy that shirt, y'all. <laughs> So why did he decide to run in 76? Was he pushed into it or did he just decide that he was the one? He had the secrets. I hate the phrase secret sauce, but I'm going to use it. He had the secret sauce that year. Or was it already established 
because this tends to be truer in the Republican Party, or at least had been until Trump, this tradition of you gotta run once so the party knows who you are, and the second time you run, you're set up and then and you're ready to go. I I think it actually so I I well maybe I'll let James answer the question first because I may, I actually might take a second to organize my thoughts but I think um Reagan represents a different brand of republicanism than Gerald Ford does right Ford is a quiet moderate conservative with Rockefeller as his vice president. <laughs> and and I think Reagan at least feels like he needs to make this Reagan and his, and his political operators that that coalesce around him feel like the the Sunbelt Republicans, right? This sort of new this new right need to be on a national platform now. Um and yeah, I I have other thoughts, but maybe I'll let James because I see him thinking. Yeah, I think I think that there was, you know, I think the thing with with Nixon is that Nixon had had dog whistled the conservative Republicans onto his platform, but never really did a whole lot to serve them. At least they didn't feel that they that that he had, um, and. And then Ford just kind of ignores them. That's just, and I think just that wasn't, those weren't his people. And he, um, you know, runs his own race, but I think clearly he is not willing to dog whistle to these people to the extent that Nixon did, um, yeah. partly because he has some sense of ethics and Nixon didn't. So, um, and that leaves them feeling like, well, Ford's not our candidate. He's not, he doesn't represent the values that we represent. He represents the Eastern establishment. He represents, um, you know, all the kind of this, all these continuation of the present state of affairs. He doesn't actually stand for change. And we feel like we need this change. And so they coalesce around Reagan as their guy to kind of make the argument that change is necessary. I think one of the things that happens when we face kind of these moments of national malaise, as we did in the 1970s, and perhaps as we are experiencing now, is people look to try to save what they have. And they try to say, there's there's a rot going on, and we want to erect a wall around what we have to stop it from coming here. Um, and in many cases, like, that rot, quote unquote, right, takes the form of diversity. Um, but it also can take the form of high crime, of, um, you know, kind of urban decline, which were real issues in this era. Um, and so this, I think, created this kind of local anxiety about like, we want to control things and we feel that the national government uh, you know, or the state government even, but especially the federal government is an institution that can subvert our control, right? So then we lose our control because the federal government is telling us that we have to do something different than what we here in, you know, Mapleville want to do. 
We don't want federal tyranny. We want local tyranny. Right, exactly. And and they wanted, they, the the powers that be wanted to maintain their, their local tyranny. And I think that is where Reagan makes a lot of hay is that he starts to say, well, look, you know, I, I'm going to critique these welfare programs that, you know, do these things. I'm going to critique. And, and he really, and, and like in the primary campaign, he goes after Ford on busing. He goes yeah. after Ford on welfare. And that's kind of where he makes his, his hay as, is on these, these local issues. Yep. This blue collar discontent. And we were talking about Dog hear the name Bruce Springsteen, please. In the late 70s, there's nobody better at chronicling what's going on in the working class. And again, when we get to Reagan's presidency, something tells me his name's going to come up again. As, long, as well as Mellencamp. Sound cute little pink houses. Sound cute little pink houses here. <laughs> in. Wait, I can I can turn to my record player here and we can really jam out to some Bob Seeger, y'all. Yeah, yep, yep. But mm-hmm. it sounds like America is primed to turn to Ronald Reagan in 1980. More next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.